0: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: Hey there, and welcome back to The Play's The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Coming up today, we will be bringing you the continued... Adventures of Angelina Stanford and Andrew Kern in the world of Much Ado About Nothing. Today they will be talking about Act 3. Hope you've been enjoying all these conversations uh, through Shakespeare, in particular through Much Ado About Nothing uh, the last few weeks. Before I get you over to their conversation, though, let's talk about... St. John's College. If you love Shakespeare, you will love St. John's College. St. John's is a leader in classical education. Founded in 1696 with campuses in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico, St. John's iconic Great Books program covers philosophy, science, math, music, Shakespeare, of course, and more. Spend four years exploring three millennia of the greatest thinkers, or you could do it in two at the Graduate Institute. With generous financial aid available, St. John's is among the most affordable colleges for true seekers. So if you have a student or you yourself are looking for the perfect college situation, then make sure you check out St. John's College. You can go to sjc.edu to learn more. Again, that is sjc.edu. All right, with that, here is Angelina Stanford and Andrew Kern, who is calling in uh, on the phone from Canada because apparently in Canada, Wi-Fi is an issue. (laughs) That is a massive generalization and an overstatement over which I will probably get in trouble with my Canadian uncles. However, he was having trouble getting connected. He had some trouble with a webinar recently, so we decided to just do it over the phone, so it does sound like he is in a tunnel. I hope you enjoyed this conversation between Angelina Stanford and Andrew Kern about Act 3 of Much and About Nothing. So,
3: Angelina, last time we we never did finish Act 2.
2: Yes, so we, we got gotta to start Italian. with
3: Act 3. Yes. Yeah, but you know, before we do, one of the things that struck me while I was reading, reviewing for today is that Act Three, Scene Two is another gulling scene.
0: Yes, I thought the same thing. Three gulling scenes in a row.
3: And then is Act Three, Scene Three? So, Three, Three is the center of the play, which is where Shakespeare always seems to put the turning point or something. Yes. Is there a gulling scene going on too with Dogberry and the Watchman? Well, or, in a are, sense, are we all right? that time?
0: in a sense, because how do I want to say this? Dogberry, it's almost like he gulls himself, right? He 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 can't he uses language as a disguise. He's also trying to appear differently than what he really is um, in this case, Mm, better, mm, mm. there is a deception going on, but it's almost, it's self-inflicted a little bit, right?
3: That's an interesting thought, because it makes me wonder if every, if every deception is self-inflicted. Oh, well, I, I, I do,
0: I absolutely agree with that, I absolutely agree with that, um, yeah, I've been thinking more and more about the role of Dogberry in the play, and especially now that you've pointed out that 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 scene with him is the central is the turning point of the play. That um, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna rant a little bit. I do not like Harold Bloom as a Shakespeare scholar at all. I, I read what he says just to kind of keep in the know, and then I yell at him in my book. Um and <laughs> I just I'm just like, what is wrong with? What's wrong with you? I like to read scholarship where it's just so obvious that they love what they've read, right? And, and they're just and so the, the well, essays. What, what, well he does, what, but he's it, oh, sorry, what he, do. well, he, he really criticizes Dogberry. He says it's a failure on Shakespeare's part that, that um like he he sees Dogberry these scenes as like an interruption in in the plot. And I think he's so wrong. I think that and we mentioned this last time. I I really do think Dogberry is a parody of Benedict and Beatrice's use of language and that Shakespeare is continuing the same idea of the language as a disguise, being self-deceived, not knowing who you are, having a a public persona that's not truly who you are, but Dogberry's the comic parody of that. I think it's so point counterpoint the way Shakespeare does it. I I could not disagree more strongly that Dogberry is a failure. Of a character. Why does,
3: why, does, why does Bloom say dog? Well, let me rephrase that question. So, you and I have been focusing a, a fair amount of attention on the use of appear, on masks and appearances and language and all that. Okay. And then, and, and does Bloom not see that? Does he not emphasize those things? Or what, what's his, what makes him conclude that Dogberry is a failure?
0: Oh, I'd have to go I'd have to pull the essay off the off the uh, shelf and it's in it's in the other room, which I mean I'm happy to run out there and get it. But uh, off the top of my head, I I don't remember that he really makes a strong argument. He just he just states it that he thinks dog bearing is a failure.
3: So so he doesn't want to have them this morning examined before your worship. He just wants to say it. He wants to just take the examination himself
0: right I guess. I guess that nice that was well played
3: i was quoting dogberry against his ass- assailant his assailant being bloom
0: <laughs> <laughs> Dogberry so wanted offended by the essay he's yelling let it be known stated for yeah, the yeah, record right. i am a failure as a <laughs> character <laughs>
3: Well, that's kind of what an ass is, isn't it? So there's Harold Bloom telling the world Dogberry is an ass.
0: <laughs> he predicted it. Dogberry the prophet.
3: Yep, yep. We just said, oops, I was going to say, Angelina, what pace is this that thy tongue keeps? You know, Shakespeare's got away with words. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but he's pretty, you know, pretty I good it. with words.
0: I'm so glad you pointed that out. He's clever, that one. Yeah.
3: Yeah, pay, pay, pay attention, you've got good wit.
0: He should be a writer.
3: You know, all he ever did was write, was write these dumb plays. He should have tried some literature.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up, though. I always feel the need. I always feel, I always feel the need to just remind people that Shakespeare was like your Saturday afternoon matinee. You know, you could pay a penny and, and you could go and see a Shakespeare play if you had a little extra yeah money, if by that you print. mean that
3: uh, yeah yeah little well, higher quality than most of well, the saturday mat
0: yes it absolutely higher quality i i don't disagree i i but i it's funny because i'm the one that always wants to argue for the sacredness of literature and that it should be taken seriously uh, and i absolutely believe that but then when it comes to shakespeare i almost want to just keep dragging him out of the ivory tower that we've put him in and just remind people that mm-hmm. it's fun. It these were not that there is not brilliant things happening in this play as a work of art. Absolutely. I mean Shakespeare's genius to me is that he could operate on two levels and um you know the high the high art level and the low art le- level and so that he you could just have a f- fabulous few hours laughing and enjoying yourself. But then if there's if you mm-hmm. want to look for more there's also more. Um it's funny, you know, trends come and go um, with how we view, we view art. And, and lately I've been feeling like I need to give people permission to enjoy this stuff. Just, it's okay to have fun. It's okay to laugh and to think, man, what a great ripping storyteller this guy is. <laughs> like, that was hilarious.
3: Yeah, I would even go so far as to say that, that your moral obligation is to lighten up and stop being so serious. Yes. Serious but not sad, let's put it that way. She used Shakespearean language, serious but not sad. Oh, the, yeah. the, um, yes. the the thing that amazes me is that in his day, Jacques Barzun goes into this too. In Shakespeare's day that 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 groundling could come into the to to the Globe and could watch the play and could follow it and in in the days of sophocles and euripides the commoner could come into the amphitheater and watch the play got it and understand it but if you do anything intellectually demanding in the slightest way that plays with language or that or that um raises questions anything like that in the modern if it's not just sheer propaganda for nihilism the modern common person whatever the heck that is in a democratic society too doesn't get it gets offended says oh it's too highfalutin and goes back to explosions and sex scenes
0: yeah right yes we, we 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 want to divide the art the line between high art and low art and say it's one or the other and you know and, and Shakespeare wouldn't wouldn't let us do that. And while you're talking, what also what also strikes me, you know, so we read Shakespeare or we watch a Shakespeare play and we say, oh, that Elizabethan language, you know, they talked so funny back then. And I always have to remind my students, no, they did not. This is poetry. No one talked like this. Right. <laughs> no one walked around <laughs> London speaking in blank verse. But that also speaks to the audience. That they could they could follow exactly. high poetic language and this I'm spinning off the top of my head here, not entirely. I mean I've I've read articles about this, but a lot of that has to do with the fact that they read the King James Bible and they heard the prayers of the Book of Common Prayer and they would have heard the, even a commoner would have heard the, that language read out loud their entire lives. That that trains the brain I think in a way to understand that poetry that we don't have. You know,
3: evil and why when he wrote the second, I think, version of Brideshead Revisited, I found, I found a foreword that he wrote to it. To it. And in it, he, he described how, and I found this utterly fascinating, he described how growing up in, I mean, he was an aristocrat, he was a snob. Growing up among post-World War I, I guess, snobs, hofs aristocracy the one great thing about it was the language he said that if you if you learn that language and listen to it the conversation around the dinner table is refined it can cover any topic under the sun with with a complexity and a nuance and a grace to it that that um that doesn't happen in he would have said that doesn't happen in the lower classes and if there's any defense under the sun for an aristocratic society the defense i would make is that it preserves language and the thing about that is that if the aristocrats are are decorous in their speech it does lift everybody's speech in the whole society it doesn't mean everybody else can do it, but it does mean everybody else can hear it. and And when what he says is that if you if you grow up on that kind of language and then go to Eton and Oxford or whatever and and read the poetry and write the finest writing that you can do, then it's very easy to descend from that into the simple language of the common folk. Now that's a very offensive way, probably for most Americans to hear it put. And I'm probably just thinking that that.
0: rubs against the grain of our Americanism. But I agree with you. Keep going.
3: Well, it rubs against the grain of my my middle classness. I mean, I resent it, but that's why I can't speak better than I do is because I wasn't raised by snobs. Right. (laughs) But okay, so so the point is, it's very easy if you have a smooth ease of language at the high level. It's very easy to come down to the simple and to the imprecise, but it's impossible to go up from the simple yes. and imprecise to the complex yes. and nuanced if you, aren't, if you aren't trained to that. And so now as an aside, when people say, why do you want to learn Latin? That's one of the main reasons I want to is because I want, I want my mind to be able to apprehend things at the Virgilian level, let's say. And you can't in English if if you only speak English, especially if you only speak my lower middle class English. So now I just created all kinds of offenses and everything. But my point is, and Barzun goes into this, that in that day, everybody could go to a Shakespeare play and get what's going on. And in this day, what we do is we read Shakespeare and we say, we can't read that because of the language. But as you just said, nobody spoke like that even then. What we are is we are intolerant. We are intolerant of anything demanding of us by habit. If it, if it, you know, we learned that in school to not tolerate things above us and to be offended by the notion that there could be something above us, but they weren't. So, and there's the music of language that, that Shakespeare was a master of. And if you delight, and this is another reason I think little kids need to read Shakespeare and he see it performed is because there's a music in his language
4: mm-hmm. that
3: you, you, you have to hear it. And it's delightful and pleasant, right? It's just flat out pleasant. And that's what we don't value pleasantness enough. So we're back. Ironically, I've reasoned into snobbery and all the way back to the fact that the real, the real point here is pleasure. You should read Shakespeare to enjoy it. You should, that's why you should read any story, Absolutely. any story literature another thing, another thing to
0: enjoy thing at too, is that language should be beautiful, and boy, that is not something we think about as moderns at all. We talk about, I mean, when you go through just like any standard composition textbook, right? It talks about the clarity of language, that's that's the main focus. Be clear. There's so little emphasis on be beautiful. If any, yeah,
3: and I blame drunk and white a lot for that, right. Right, because right. Strunk, Strunk and White, people don't realize this, but Strunk and White were among the first modernists in style, and what they wanted was fairness and conciseness. That's,
0: that's exactly and in
3: effect, Yeah, and clarity is important sometimes, but if, if Dogbrey right. was clear, he wouldn't be Dogbrey.
0: Right. Clarity is good for some types of writing, but other types of writing need the vagueness of it, the multiple levels of meaning, poetic meaning. Um. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, mm-hmm.
0: You shakespeare Shakespeare would not be Shakespeare if you know if Ben Johnson had his way and made him follow the classical rules of writing. Uh, but but you no, know, this but that, brings up yeah. a lot of points. I mean, not just that the the average person was listening to poetry, but also they spoke it really fast. I've read I've read articles, you know, because. It, modern productions of Shakespeare would have to take scenes out because it's so long, but I've read articles that they weren't that long during the actual Elizabethan age because that they talked so fast. And I think that speaks to the musical quality you're talking about. I mean, can you imagine the banter between Benedict and Beatrice going just breakneck spilling? I don't know how the audiences could hear it that fast, (laughs) but obviously their ears were trained for that. So not only is it complex sentence structure and it's poetry and it's puns and it's all this sophisticated use of language it's also super fast
3: what pace is this that thy tongue keeps yeah the, the, <laughs> beatrice says that to margaret and early on benedict said to beatrice i would that my horse had the speed of your tongue yep, yep. so obviously she had to be talking fast i agree part of that too is is that like an athlete you can you can you can um you can move faster in your mind and body through, through repetition. And so sometimes what we do is, and this is why I really don't like reading so many books in school. I think reading a few books, deeply and repeatedly is what teaches a kid how to read. Because if you read, if you read Much Ado About Nothing one time, and maybe see it on the screen one time, you haven't read it. I mean, it, it's, that's a good way to introduce yourself to it. But it's through the repeated viewings and the repeated hearings that your mind learns to, to absorb it. Just like learning, again, learning a foreign language, right? When I'm, when I'm at these Latin retreats and people are talking Latin, to me, everything sounds super fast. Or, again, to the sports metaphor, mm. when, when football players are learning the playbook, and, and rookies especially, they always talk about how the second and third year, they'll say, the game just slowed down for me. Well, it's not because people started moving slower. (laughs) It's because the mind catches up and our minds can, can, can learn to do pretty well. Anything if you well, I don't want to be ridiculous, but our minds can learn to do anything that the mind can do with great speed and, 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 and skill simply through doing it over and over again.
0: Absolutely. This speaks to one of my great passions. And I know you feel the same way that language should be the center of education um. And, and all the things that that means, the study of Latin grammar, uh, the reading of great books, memorizing poetry, but just being fully immersed in language, all the things that that does for us on, on every level, the brain development, the vocabulary development, the the, the, the effect on, on your soul. And one of the things that I have pondered for a long time is the connection between language and thinking. And so you're, you're talking about the breakdown of language in our culture, which I completely agree of. I always wonder is it possible to think thoughts that you do not have the language for. And so if have we have, to
3: have this to them.
0: right and so if we have this breakdown in language then of course we're going to see an overall breakdown in in the kinds of thoughts people have. Like our thoughts are debased because our language is debased.
3: I completely agree with that. I would I would put per, pursue it a, a little bit further and say language and then whatever the other thing is that maybe is form, but I think I think the quadrivial arts are 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 accessing reality in a in a symbolic and apprehensible way as well. There's there's a there's a, there's a thought that can be put into language, and then sometimes that's what. Okay, now we're on to silence, right? When when you get those two references to silence into one, I think it is where. Claudio says silence is the perfectest herald of joy. But then one page later, Don Pedro says to Beatrice, your silence most offends me. And that's that's quite the juxtaposition because because Beatrice is a speaker, I guess. So so on the personal level, she should be speaking. But I think Shakespeare's getting at both the importance and, and reach of language and its limit, and there's there's that which takes place in our soul that can't be embodied in in sound symbols like that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and oh. needs music and needs art and needs dress it needs attire it needs it needs um form and shape it needs number it needs geometry and I think that's one reason why it's worth mentioning that Dogbury is act three, scene three, and that Shakespeare typically structures his plays in a chiastic pattern where three, three is the focal point, right? The, or the, the transitional point, Tra- chiastic meaning like the body where you have the head in the middle and then you have the opposite things. Um, you have the same thing in, in, on opposite sides. So you have a right shoulder and a left shoulder, a right bicep mm-hmm. and a left bicep, a right elbow and a left elbow. And so it's A and then, or sometimes it's AA, but you A and then B, B, C, C, D, D. Anyway, there's this formality to the play. And if you ignore the form, which Shakespeare's audience by nature was attentive to all the mm-hmm. time, mm-hmm. because if Elizabethan culture was anything, it was formal. Um, if you ignore the form of a play if you ignore the form of anything really you can't know it but Absolutely. if you attend to the form then there's echoes that take place and uh, there's a there's a there's a language form correspondence that i think is reflected or expressed in genesis 1 where god speaks the world into being but he speaks it into form so anyway i agree language is the two things we neglect in our culture are form and language mm-hmm. and therefore mm-hmm. we are we are losing our culture and that's what that's what the that's what some people want our culture is so corrupt and so evil and so so patriarchal and so so rooted in slavery that we need to lose our culture and and if that's their intention they're they're being successful but sometimes you sow the wind and you reap the whirlwind if we want to preserve the culture, we're not going to do it through an argument. We're going to do it through the use of of beautiful language and, and making really good art.
0: Abs- uh, Whoever
3: can, tells the best can, stories wins, Angelina. Yes. Whoever tells the best stories wins. And that's why the tragedy of our age is that is that, if I can exaggerate, right-thinking people make horrible movies. That's and right. The stories of our age belong to the most Propagandistic, immoral um, views of the world, and in fact, the st- you know—who tells the stories of our age is the advertisers. Yes, Th- those those yeah. those control us far more than we're aware.
0: We internalize those stories. Think,
3: <laughs> if we keep the volume up, <laughs> I think we don't. I think we when we're if we're going to watch a football game or a baseball game or or a sporting event or or you know some cultural thing on TV or or just our favorite show, watch the show, but you got to mute the commercials because those are coming after you and they're subtle and they know you, they research you, they know exactly how to get you and you got to turn them off. But more importantly, we need we need to be making our, our, our stories and they can't just be the same old morality tales. They have to be just goods, Wendell Berry, Flannery O'Connor, you know, the kind of story... says that that's just a dang good story using language beautifully that's Mm -hmm. what we need formal they have to be formal
0: could not could not agree more this is why i always say stories will save the world um Mm -hmm.
3: uh, yes either that or the world won't be saved
0: agreed agreed and 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 Gosh, this is is one of my favorite topics. So I'll try to limit limit the soapbox. I'm about to get on here, but stories are so important on so many levels, and they and they operate in this harmonizing way into our soul that it's very difficult to start breaking it down. Just just like just to use an analogy just like when people start saying well you should study latin because it'll give you a better standardized test score. You know I want to punch a wall when people say that. That could not be missing the point more, right? That you just gave away the argument when you when you gave that reason. And so what, if we want to start talking about stories and w- even the way we we defend stories often Contributes to the problem. I mean, stories are holistic and they harmonize in, in all these multiple ways, and um, they're so good even for our emotional and spiritual health that we don't even think about that. So, so one of my <laughs> one of my little pet areas of interest um, is I discovered that in in the in the ancient and medieval Middle East, they treated insanity. Ready for this? ready for this? You know what the cure for insanity was?
3: music
0: they read them fairy tales oh, i love it and
3: if it worked
0: it i think it did work and the I, the idea behind it was that the insane person was operating on some sort of interior logic that was disconnected from reality it made sense to them mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. an insane person does makes sense they're actually not illogical they're hyper logical they're just based off very faulty premises um and so they would reorient them to reality by introducing fairy tales to them, which is just fascinating to me on a number of levels. But I think that this is what good stories do to all of us. It, it reorients us to reality, which we can get lost okay, in. You're
3: killing me. You're killing me. You know, you know in, in Plato, in, in the Gorgias, Plato, Socrates is trying to make a case for reason, let's say, and, and true, knowable truth. And there's, he he silences Gorgias in the, in, the, in a discussion. Then the second guy steps up and he silences him. And then the third guy steps up, who's just completely obnoxious to the point of being on the on the, is so cynical and so nihilistic that he's on the verge of insanity. And Socrates, let's just say he doesn't use the science, the Socratic method with him. He the guy says, "Just tell me." Just tell me what you think because I don't want to have a discussion. I don't want you to manipulate me. So Socrates tells him a fairy tale.
4: Oh, that's
0: fantastic.
3: (laughs) It's magnificent. (laughs) Fairy tales are the foundation of wisdom in so many ways. Now consider this. Here we have in Much Ado About Nothing, Mm -hmm. we have two characters who are seeming to be rational people. They're very cynical. Yes, But they can't get in touch with themselves. So what do they have to hear in order to discover themselves? Yes, In effect, yes. they have to be lied to. They have to be told a fairy tale. They Which have to be told the exact story they want yes. to hear.
0: Right, and it them to the greater reality, the truth they've been carrying around all the time but can't acknowledge. Yes, I love
3: Exactly. That. I love that. What I love that. about I love people... People, when people say, well, should Christians read fiction? My answer to that is the reason Christians should read fiction is because Christians are fictions. And what I mean by that is not that they're hypocrites. I mean that they're the image of God. Okay? Fiction yes. means something made. Okay? Yes. So, yes. so yes. a story is a fiction because it's made up. All right. So are we. We're made up. We're images. And as something made in the image of another, we love images, we learn from images. We are analogies. We need analogies to know reality. In fact, I don't believe personally that we can know reality other than analogically.
0: Oh, I'm clapping over here. Yes, I I could not agree with you more. Absolutely. And that's one of my pet peeves too. I like to go around correcting this horrible idea that fiction means false and nonfiction means true. No, fiction means a work of the imagination. It does not imply truth or falseness.
3: For example, Beatrice, like a lapwing, runs close by the ground. Okay. Is she really running like a lapwing? No. Yes, she is. Or no, she's not. Whatever (laughs) you said, I could have said the opposite, right? Exactly. It's a a picture. It's an image. It's made up. It's a fiction. It is a fiction that reveals the truth. Yes. And that's what, that's what our culture, our world, and our souls, especially our mad people's souls, especially that element of me that's mad. Mm-hmm. What we need is stories instead of arguments. And, and yes, you get yes, this is what yes. drives me nuts about the, the worldview people is that that's always an argument. Look, you yes. want to tell people about the Christian worldview, then tell them a story because the Christian worldview is a story worldview.
0: That's right. Exactly. And, and uh, yeah, that's another one of my soapboxes of which our listeners can download any number of my Cersei Talks to hear me rant against this. But yes, they also want to turn stories into an argument, which they are not. They want to, you know, take the parts of the story apart and look for the argument. No, the story is the story.
3: Oh, oh, but this is so, you know, everybody's thinking when you talk about much do much about nothing, and i'm thinking we are
0: that's what i'm so, thinking too I, i'm making the connections in my so, head as we go
3: cuz benedict as soon as you said the story is not an argument my mind fell on benedict responding to yes
0: right he makes he, so. and it's but it's humorous cuz it's ridiculous logic the world must be peopled but he's right but he's trying to do this logical argument thing
3: but the but the thing about it is and what we're discussing is persuasion right <laughs> We're discussing how a person becomes persuaded. We're discussing worldview versus story, for example, and what does he do? Okay, so they tell they let him overhear a false dialogue in which they tell a story in sort of argument form, but it's personal it's it's um it's narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And and midway through, Benedict says, I should think this a gull, but that the white bearded fellow speaks it. Knavery right. cannot sure hide himself in such reverence. Well, apparently, knavery can. And apparently, sometimes reverence takes the form of knavery in mm-hmm. order to reveal itself, which reminds me of something I think it was St. Augustine said about, about, or maybe it was Thomas Aquinas, but in any case, the most effective metaphor or image is the one most different from the thing being revealed because because your mind has to leave the gap. And that is why it is so fitting for God to reveal himself in metaphors like an unjust judge. Because because when you hear Jesus say that prayer is like talking to an unjust judge, the very difference, the knavery, if I can be forgiven using that term, the knavery of such reverence is what makes the reverence visible. I guess it's like a, a diamond on velvet, but I don't think that's really the point. In any case, Benedict is, is listening and he's starting to, to, he has to, he has to come to a conclusion. What is the moral of the story he's asking? When he gets to that, when it's all done and they, let, they say, let's send, let's send mm-hmm. her in to get mm-hmm. him to dinner. His response is, this can be no trick. That's his conclusion. Right. Why? Right. A. The conference was sadly born. B. They have the truth of this from Hero. Okay. So the, the witness is onto it. Three. I love this language. They seem mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. pity the lady. To pity the lady. Four. It seems her affections have their full bend, and now and now he's kind of he's no longer reasoning. He's just going where he wants to go. Love me why it must be requited problem i hear how i am Mm -hmm. censored. they say i will bear myself proudly and then he works through the refutation in effect i must not seem proud happy are they and now he starts bringing in proverbs and stuff you know he's reasoning himself to exactly the place they wanted him to go because it's where he wanted them that's
0: exactly what i was gonna say in the end the logic is just the subterfuge he believes it not because it's logical but because he wants to believe it And that's why it's so hilarious that he's breaking down this logical argument and says, therefore, I will be horribly in love with her. (laughs) That's hilarious. That's not how this
4: works.
0: (laughs) But this also speaks, I think, to what we're trying to get at with Dogberry, right? So there's the idea that fictions carry the truth. And Mm -hmm. Dogberry is the one who's carrying the key to unravel the whole mess, the real truth of the matter but doesn't know he's carrying it and has, has twisted it up to something unrecognizable. But those who have eyes to see and ears to hear understand what it is he's actually saying. Sometimes. But in, in the sense of, uh, you know, unraveling who the real bad guys are.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it comes out. It definitely comes out. You know what surprises me that he doesn't like, that Bloom doesn't like Dogberry? Is Harold Bloom is a self-professed Gnostic. He even wrote a whole book about Gnosticism and literature. And if Gnosticism is anything, it's the idea of emanations from a logos, right? So the further you get from a logos, the more, the more the um logos can enter into the lowly. Okay, but but you have to get far removed from. It. So you would think a Gnostic would be really welcoming this notion of a dogberry being the means to reveal you the actual think. logos, the actual point. Huh?
0: You would think.
3: It nope. is an offense to say, again, I'm against his will.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that we have <laughs> Stuff
3: done. like that that's so profound. Go ahead. Sorry.
0: Well, one of the things that we haven't talked about, and I'm just going to bring it up, but I don't necessarily know what the answer is, is the fact that 50% of Much Ado About Nothing is prose and not poetry. And Shakespeare usually is very intentional about that and about what characters speak poetry and what characters speak prose. So for example, um, in The Taming of the Shrew, uh, the framing scene when, um, Christopher Sly comes in, he's the tinkerer. He's low level, so he's speaking prose because poetry is for the high level characters. And when they convince him that he's actually a nobleman who has amnesia and just doesn't remember that he's a nobleman, he immediately starts talking in poetry. So Shakespeare Shakespeare does all those kinds of twists. So I can't help but think about the fact that Beatrice and Benedict speak prose, right? They're they're reasonable characters. They're hyper-rationalists. They're anti-romantic. So they speak in prose. Um, but then I noticed that after Beatrice's gulling scene, she switches to blank verse. Now she's so now she's becoming, I guess, romantic and in love.
3: I'm looking for that. That's amazing.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know I if it's Claudia
3: speaking poetry.
0: Claudio definitely speaks in poetry. So,
4: I'm not a Pedro. Huh.
3: Oh, here's okay. Here's Beatrice. Hero, why, hero, uncle, senior Benedict, prior. Oh, good grief! Huh?
0: So that last. How
3: fascinating scene is- that the tragic scene is is poetry.
0: Right, right, and I didn't, I haven't looked close enough to trace it the whole way through. Uh, but but I know Shakespeare does this intentionally when he switches between poetry and prose. So, and and I think yeah, I think it's very significant that Beatrice and Benedict's war of words is in prose, because I do think they represent, like we've been saying, this hyper rational, logical, you know, Beatrice's reasons for being against marriage are also very logical, you know, and so are Benedict's. I'll be cuckolded. It won't be good for me. It'll be a loss of freedom. Beatrice says it will be a loss of freedom to me, too. Why would I do such a thing to myself? course that's the paradox of love it's a willing enslavement to another person and you do it willingly you throw yourself into the dungeon with them it's not logical huh. at all
3: huh. um it's not enlightenment or logical that's for yes, sure
0: that, yes that's what i'm yes that's what i'm speaking to
3: huh that that's the i'm you know i had never noticed not you see you've got me looking at the text oh, looking for the poetry okay. because too thick had to do notice that before that's amazing so pedro says of, of benedict when they're gulling him at three two he says there is no appearance of fancy in him
4: mm-hmm.
3: i wonder if i mean he's talking about he's not in love right or right. So, he's, so he's not imaginative I guess that's what you're getting at is that Benedict is, is not willing to be an imaginative open person. And I can't help, but wonder if so much of the opposition to fiction, isn't just fear that unwillingness to, to, to imagine because you might fall in love.
0: Yes. And it
3: with the world, yeah. with a book, with literature, with, you know, whatever.
0: Agreed. Totally, totally agree with that. And even the you know, that scene with the toothache, that's a so even that's a pun because apparently the Elizabethan thought was that if you fell in love it would make your teeth hurt. <laughs> And so so it's a pun maybe
3: from grinding.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I don't I don't know, but lover yeah, lovers were commonly supposed to suffer from toothache. So there's a pun there when they say, Oh, what's wrong with you, Benedict? And he says, I have the toothache. And then they talk about his face is swollen and distorted. And they're all, you know, they're 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 punning on that. So because he really he's in love. It's and it's and it's funny.
3: (laughs) It is funny. So so the gulf fling scenes are are two three and three one and they're just really funny and then in three two claudio gets gets galled yes. by Don, Don. yes yes and then and then there's the there's the scene with Dogbury, which is kind of the inversion scene after that I Margaret and Ursula get into this really weird discussion that I could not understand about fashion.
0: Yeah, I don't follow that either. I kind of just felt like that was to I was hoping that a lady could explain it to me. No, sorry. I would not be the right woman to explain that. But they are, they're, they're talking about this. They heard that Benedict is in love. So there's that. They introduced that. But uh, what did I what yeah. did I want to say yeah. about this? Oh, oh, I think it's worth noting because I think this speaks to what we're talking about too with how stories have degraded. We we've degraded language, we've degraded storytelling. Um we have rejected more imaginative what the um what the romantics would have called fancy works of fancy uh, to more like Hyper realism, right? Which I argue is a fiction in itself. There's no such thing as a realistic story. Stories by nature are crafting and putting things together that don't actually happen in real life, like condensing time, for example. You know,
3: it's in but don't you think that's what the um that's what the um postmodernists have got right is that is that realism is rubbish. So they've they've kind of exploded the boundaries and gone maybe too far.
0: No, I agree. I actually do think we're beyond the tipping point, and that's why we're seeing you know, superhero movies. I think, I think we've, I think we've gone as far as we can go and been like, okay, actually realism is, is boring. If somebody really did, you know, reality TV isn't real and we make fun of that, but that's the reason that they do that is because it's boring. They, they have to craft some sort of narrative to make it entertaining for us to watch. Um, and and mm-hmm. I think that that has really made us rethink what a, what a story is and what a story should be. But one of the things I think is worthy to point out is that the scene between Margaret and oh I've forgotten the guy's name, not Boccaccio, baraccio um, that happens off stage. Right. We do not right. see that. That is offstage. Um, the characters talk about it and 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 that speaks to something. That was a long. It's
4: obscene. it's obscene,
0: right? Off stage literally means off stage, and so that was an ancient idea. That was a medieval idea, and a Renaissance. It's an idea that held on for a very long time. That some things were not appropriate to be on stage, right? So Lady Macbeth kills herself, and then somebody walks in and says she killed herself, right? She she's not going to kill herself on the stage. That is not appropriate for the stage blinding Mm -hmm. happens off stage and then someone reports it same things in sophocles right we're reported of the death we're reported of the of the blinding um and and plot wise of course we don't need to see those things for it to have an emotional effect on us we only have to hear them but modern storytelling has focused so much on close-ups of people vomiting right all this quote-unquote gritty realism which um I think degrade story. I think degrade story and this is this is my little pet theory about why suddenly we're having all of these kinds of you know vomiting scenes, urination I was telling my students I was like you know somebody from the future is gonna watch movies from this time period and think that every important boardroom decision that was ever made happened over a urinal. You know that's 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 the story movies tell, right? And it's not real. It's not true. I'm not a man, but I'm told by male friends that that is not. It's not what it's like in the bathroom at all. It's awkward looking at the ceiling, and no one's having boardroom discussions. Um, but but that's part of the fiction of realism we have in our stories right now. but my my theory is that deep down, everyone knows that a a, a good story is transcendent, right? you You have some sort of emotional identification and experience. You feel something in a story something tragic, something happy and redemptive, something sad, something joyful. But you, the point of a story is you're going to feel something. You experience something with these characters and you feel it. That's hard to do. And so I think modern storytellers take the shortcut by going for these little shock value moments, right? I, if I show a close-up of someone vomiting, my audience is going to have a response to that. That's a cheap and easy way to get a response out of my audience rather than crafting a story that Gives them some transcendent moment. So that's my little pet theory that it's just lazy storytelling. It's easy, it's easy to get a response from that kind of, you know, or to right. get a response from a close up of someone being murdered, which I always cover my eyes for that. Right. I not handle right. that. But anyway, I. <laughs>
3: To get a superficial response, right?
0: Right, and so I just wanted, Probably, to, I wanted reason, us not to reason, miss that it happens off stage, and um, because in the movie version right. we see
3: it. Right, and it's a distraction. the the um, The reason things happen off stage is because is because the sh- cheap shock reaction isn't what the skilled writer wants. Mm-hmm. He wants you to be—he wants you to be thinking and feeling. At a way, at a at a deeper level, not not to 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 use the Greek language, he wants to at least be appealing to your chest, if not to your noose. He, he's not going after your loins and your belly the way the modern movie makers make it. I was thinking something similar about superhero movies and the question of realism. When when I was a kid, we would watch something on TV and we go, "Oh, that's so unrealistic." because some, we heard somebody say that right mm-hmm. so we thought that's what you're supposed to say well now i've i've developed the theory that with hdtv or whatever it is with the with the incredibly vivid imagery that you see it's got to the point where it's it's visually it's too realistic
0: mm-hmm.
3: ah, so what they're doing now is because the because the scenery is so realistic and the settings are, are so realistic. What they're doing now is taking the characters and making them unrealistic. So if you look at a movie from the 80s and earlier, 90s, even probably, the characters basically are just normal people, right? Almost always, unless you watch Batman or something, but they're basically normal people. But now audiences are turning to movies more and more for abnormal people. X-Men and you know the superhero movies. And so you see just the most ludicrously stupid thing is the way people with wide hips can run so super fast, which, you know, (laughs) forgive me for being sexist, but the female body has a different purpose than running fast and the hips are wide so that babies can, can, you know, survive and thrive. The the whole female, everything that's different about the female body is a celebration of childhood. And so when you start making the female body do these male things and people are going, Oh yeah, it's empowering females. Come on. Good grief. It's it's mocking femininity. So forgive me for saying that, but the point is everything about what's going on in these superhero movies is an attack on human nature and, and is, is a, no, it isn't. It's not, an, not everything, but it's a, it's my point is it's not realistic. It's, it's not, it's, the characters now have become the drama because because what what used to be the story itself or whatever you know, they, they've but especially the settings have become so realistic that you have to keep reminding people this is just the story because what people want is to be constantly reminded that this is a story oh, while at the same time being convinced it's real.
0: Yes, 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 and that's why. We can be so satisfied with these comic endings in Shakespeare's plays where he pulls a rabbit out of his hat and magically fixes everything. That's what we want in a comedy. That's not a disappointment. And, And I think the thing with the superhero movies, I think culturally they're fascinating how popular they are. And I think part of it is that when you live in a nihilistic, morally confused universe, the last thing you want to do is plop down 15 bucks to go sit in a two hour morally confused nihilistic film. You you got that all day long. I think people are desperate for a two hour break where good guys are good and bad guys are bad. And the moral universe is easy to distinguish and I can breathe and make sense of this reality.
3: I agree with that with the qualifier that that the people making these movies don't know what good and bad are.
0: Ah, uh, true. And so
3: they so they get pretty confused about it. But nonetheless it creates this it does create a, a white hat black hat scenario. It does, but then it's, I read they're this. the modern
0: Oh, well, I read this really interesting article. We get, we're getting off the track here, but but not really, because we're still talking about stories. And it was contrasting, I'm not super into superhero movies, so I'm, I'm going to base this off of the article, but it was contrasting the DC Comics movies with the Marvel movies and about how the Marvel movies were much more financially successful and that the reason was because the DC Comics movies were very dark and still nihilistic and had conflicted postmodern heroes and that audiences didn't want that. They want Captain America. They want Dudley Do-Right. They want squeaky clean. This is a good guy, right? That They don't want conflicted heroes. And so the article was saying that DC Comics needed to, you know, see which wind, way the wind was blowing and realize that people wanted the Marvel movies. And after that was when DC Comics made Wonder Woman. And that was a huge success. And it was more in line with the Marvel. You know, she's not conflicted. Wonder Woman knows who she is and she's good. And she's, you know, she's not – some of the DC Comics heroes are, are practicing vengeance. They're not committed to justice. They personally need to avenge something. It makes for a more morally yeah, confusing yeah. universe. But it yeah. this does actually apply to Shakespeare because we're about to see Shakespeare not this. In, in, in Act 4, he's going to create a, a knot that seems like there's no way out of this. And Claudio is going to come out looking really bad, and then he's going to turn it I all agree. around and happily ever after. And that's not a flaw in the play.
3: Agreed. Totally. There is, there is much do about nothing probably is Shakespeare's best, most mature play. And the reason for that is because there's a darkness flowing through it that I guess Don John is the dark force, but there's a darkness and a, and a, and a weightiness flowing through it that on the surface, there's so much funny stuff going on, but the, the shame
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And the and the the questionableness of Claudio in in that scene in Act Four is well, it, it's in Scene One of or sorry, Scene Two. Or, let's look at that Scene Two because that's the dark scene, right? Which and, one? And oh, at oh, the act end uh, Act Three, Scene Act Three, Scene Two. Yeah, when Don John dulls them. Okay, so. I keep saying Dalka because I, I want to remember the word. Um, <laughs> Claudio, okay, so Claudio and Pedro um, get John's report. And Claudio says, may this be so? Pedro's response is wonderful. I will not think it. And Don John says, if you dare not trust, what we would say what, but if you dare not trust that you see, confess not that you know, if you will follow me, I will show you enough. And when you have seen more and heard more, proceed accordingly. Don John's being very, very subtle here, right? He's, oh, he's, yes. Oh, he's yes. saying, Look, I'm going to show you. And then you base your actions on what you see. Again, it's about rhetoric, it's about persuasion. How do you win somebody's heart? And Don John is very clever at that. But watch what Claudio says. Mm-hmm. This is never in the movie, it seems. If I see anything tonight, why I should not marry her tomorrow, in the congregation where I would where I should wed her, there will I shame her. Mm-hmm. And Pedro says, yep. "And as I would for thee to obtain her, I will join with thee to disgrace her." And there's a certain there's a certain rationality to this, a certain um, self protection that's disturbing. Because okay, now I'll go back to scene. One where they're gulling Beatrice, all right. And I love the metaphor here. Now, this is ladies talking, so you have to read it. But go back to scene three, scene one of act three, when Ursula and Hero are talking, okay, and Beatrice enters and, and hides. In my book, it's line 27 ish. Yeah, I see. Um, wow. Beatrice hides, and uh, Hero says to Ursula, Now begin for look where Beatrice, like a lapwing, runs close by the ground to hear our conference because she's been told that, that that they're talking about her, okay? Okay, now say, look at, Ursula gives this wonderful picture. Re- read what Ursula says, there, the pleasantest
0: The pleasantest lines. angling is to see the fish cut with her golden oars the silver stream and greedily devour the treacherous bait. So angle we for Beatrice, who even now is couched in the woodbine coverture Fear you not my part of the dialogue.
3: Then go we near her that her ear lose nothing of the false sweet bait. This is poetic lines. Um, What I love about this, I made a note in my margin. What a fish does when it's pursuing the bait is casting aside self-protection. It sees the bait and it stops reasoning. It stops protecting itself and it goes after the bait. And in the case of the fish, of course, it gets killed or put back. It gets hurt anyway. So we for Beatrice, right? But but Claudio won't give up his self protectiveness. Mm-hmm. Even even now, preparing himself to be deceived by Hero when in fact he's being deceived by Don Don John. That's right. And this is what, to... what I would go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that what I would suggest is that it's it's the it's the um inability to accept reality that leads don john to think he can protect himself from deception and thereby becomes deceived the 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 fact of the matter is we're all prone to be deceived and it's like jesus talking about the pharisees if i had not come they would not have sinned or when he says he says if they seek honor from men and not from god the reason we believe what we believe is partly because we reason ourselves to it. But much more, we believe what we believe and we do what we do because of whose respect and honor we want to receive. Who are we looking? I say this all the time in talks, so forgive me, but who's well done do we want to hear? That's what determines what, 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 and, and who's, and Claudio's confused. He doesn't know whose respect he wants and that makes him prone to deception. He doesn't know himself and, that, and, and, and so forgive me, but Beatrice and Benedict, same thing. Oh, yes. They don't know themselves, don't know what they want, but with them, at least they really want something, right? At least they, they really do want each other. And as soon as they're given the opportunity to admit that they do, but Claudio, he hasn't got in touch with himself yet. He doesn't know who he is and what he wants, and he needs a better story to be told him to figure out who he is.
0: And I think with all three, because we said Benedict and Beatrice are deceived because, because they want to believe it. That's a sense in which that's true of Claudio too. I mean, Cla- they've been talking about cuckolding this Absolutely. whole time, and so he, he's very quick to believe that this is this has happened to him. That what Benedict has been saying happens to every man is now happening to me. And um, I also see no, being cuckolded—that that Harrow is not—he's been bed. deceived. That he's been deceived by the woman he loves. That she she's running around right. with other men. Uh, I've been deceived. So he's—it's um—it's so this weird on guardedness, because he believes he could be deceived, is what makes him be deceived, right? That
3: exactly.
0: And I love a few lines down. Go ahead.
3: No, you go, I, I've got, mine's a sidetrack.
0: Well, I, I, a side track. I, I like that Harrow calls it honest slanders, what they're doing. I love that. Mm-hmm. Because there's two different kinds of slanders happening in this story. So there's the honest slanders and the dishonest slanders. And I think this speaks to what we're talking about with fiction. There's a sense of which fiction's an honest slander, right? It's not really the truth per se, but it's the greater truth. And I also love that they keep yeah. going back. Yeah, truth. I love that they keep going back to the idea that Cupid wounds you. And I think that speaks to what you're saying about Claudio's self-protectedness. He doesn't want to be wounded, not really.
3: Yeah, and that's going to make him a rotten husband anyway. So maybe the great thing about Claudio is what happened to him that revealed him to himself was that he was so deceived that he did See, he he didn't appreciate Hero. That's obvious to me. He, he fell in love with her. He, she was pretty it's a it's a high school of love right she, she was she he was able to put it off before the battle they come back from the battle and now he's in love with her because now he can be okay but immediately i think it was you who talked about this immediately he's going around getting approval from other people mm-hmm. for his love for her he's, he's in love with the idea of love but she's a trophy for him right and and he'll he'll get and I do believe that the reason most people fall in love is because the person they fall in love with will bring honor on them and and they will make them look good. I, I honestly believe that. So so he's he's in that mode, but he's not in love with her. What he has to do to fall in love with her is lose her. She has to die
4: mm-hmm. for
3: her to act, fall in love with her. And 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 he is purged by her death. Spoiler alert, she dies. But yeah, so everybody's trying to get in touch with themselves. I don't know if Dogberry knows himself, but um, nobody else does. And that's why they're vulnerable to nothing.
0: Yes. Yes, abs- absolutely. And I think those are good thoughts for the readers to have as they go into Act 4 and Act 5. Because it's rough. It's rough to read what Claudio is going to do. And it, and it's rough to feel like at the end, hey, he, he got off scot-free. <laughs> so I, mm-hmm. I like what you're saying <laughs> about, no, no, this is, this is going to result in a transformation for him too. Um, and what he does is going to also change things between Benedict and Beatrice. So it's a transformation for them as well. And I also was struck this time by that Leonardo is is a fool. There's a, been a, a, so there's that earlier scene at the masking ball when they're when he's being deceived accidentally, well-intentionally that Don Pedro is about to make advances to his daughter, right? And he asks, well, how do you know this to be true? And the guy says, well, I can show you, I'll bring, let me bring the guy, right? So. Let me bring the witness for you to question. Leonardo says that's not necessary. And then he's deceived. This is almost exactly what happens with Dogberry, right? I've got these guys. I want you to examine them. And Leonardo's like, no, I can't. I'm not going to examine them. I'm on my way to the church. So his refusal to continue to, just to stand there and actually look at evidence and get all the facts keeps causing all these problems.
3: That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about that. So, So there is a place for reason and careful thought then. It's not all just about desire. Yes, God, not oh all these, yeah, that would not they're, be they're, Shakespeare's
0: they're, way to give us any neat and tidy <laughs> emotion versus reason. Therefore, I'm no, He's gonna. He's gonna show there's a relationship there, right?
3: Hmm. Mm. That's really good because because one of the things that were the Watchmen when they arrest Conrad and Boratia, something that I'd never seen before. Um, and you made me think of this also when you when you said the word transformed. Um, so there's this idea of Claudio being transformed, and there's the idea that that um, Leonardo is too hasty to listen to witnesses. He's always, he's a businessman. He's always on to the next thing. I can relate to his folly. <laughs> um, the the, uh, the the second Watchman around 164. Well, let's go with, here, why don't we just read the ending of Act 3, Scene 3, starting with the arrest, where, where the first watchman jumps up and arrests him. Okay, I'll, I'll be the first watchman, you be the second watchman.
0: I'm trying to find that. W- roughly what line are you? Very end, I,
3: I wonder if your book doesn't have it, maybe, but it's 162 in my book. Oh, Act I got three, it now, I got three. it now.
0: Okay, I got it. Okay. Yeah, we charge you in the prince's name, Stan, this?
3: Yes, that. Okay. And it's it's right where Baraccio has just told Conrad the whole story, where apparently, even there it's masking, right? Where Hero and, and I mean, sorry, Conrad and Margaret are, apparently they're playing some kind of sex game where they play roles. Yes, and yes. And each one is pretending to be somebody else. So, so he's got Margaret saying Claudio, and he is saying Hero. Yes. While, yes. you know, and nasty. this is another
0: eavesdropping um, scene. So, so the guards,
3: exactly. they
0: overhear this conversation.
3: Perfect. They overhear a conversation that was overheard, about being overheard in another conversation about wearing masks. So we've got <laughs> very Shakespearean, very Russian doll-esque. So at the end of that, the first watchman says, we charge you in the prince's name, stand your turn
0: sorry i got a text from david that we need to wrap it up okay (laughs)
3: okay Okay.
0: call up the right master constable we have here recovered the most dangerous piece of lechery that ever was known in the commonwealth
3: and one deformed is one of them i know him where's the lock masters 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 masters. You're, you're barraccio but okay
0: okay i'm sorry go ahead your second watchman. your turn
3: Am I? I thought I was first. You're first I'm first. Now everybody's no. lost.
0: Never mind. I'm second one. I don't know what's happening.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, he wants us to wrap up, so I'll just tell you what I was gonna say. <laughs> tell that me word now. deformed. That word deformed really jumped off the page at me. One yes. deformed is one of them. What they're doing is he's mishearing something that um uh, on the previous page way up at at um yes had said um but seest thou now what a deformed thief this fashion is and the watchman says i know that deformed Mm. he he thinks it's a name he thinks it's the name of a thief right
4: yes and
3: okay and then he jumps all over it and that's what he celebrates that yeah one deformed is one of them but that's what that's what this whole play is about, is formation, <sighs> deformation, and transformation. It's just so
0: good, because my note says that when he says deformed thief, he's actually talking about like a shapeshifter. And that's oh, really. really good. That's really good, because shifting, that's all part of what we've been talking about, right? Who are we? We're different things to different people. We're different things to ourselves.
3: Ah, that's fabulous. Brings in Harry Potter, too.
0: Yeah. Always appropriate to bring in Harry Potter, in my opinion. <laughs> All right, yeah, we wrap it up. I think David's sweating right outside here. So,
3: okay, okay. Well, we didn't get into much of the 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 lines in Act Three, but at least we summarized, you know, the 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 two dulling scenes, which are so funny. And then I get—I don't know if people expect us to read lines or whatever. I don't. I don't. Um, I, I haven't. Forgive me, but I haven't listened to very many of the plays the things podcasts um I, 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 don't I know think if it,
0: what we're doing by 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 painting these broad lines and this framework to help people understand what they're reading. I think that's very helpful. I know that's helpful for me when people do that for me okay, okay, especially as, as okay, because, because the conclusion in this play is a little bit startling, and i i think I think this will help us to get to the end and not say what the no, what did we just? Someone needs to take Claudio back and beat him, which is true. <laughs> so we got to say yeah, because Shakespeare a lot actually does do that.
3: People, Claudio needs a beating, but you could say he gets one. Well, that's um, exactly. A lot it. of people, a lot of people read the play or watch the play like Margaret, who says in response to Beatrice, "Oh, illegitimate construction," and they think the play is an illegitimate construction. But is it? Right, Shakespeare. Shakespeare pulls something masterful off in this play. My, my, my closing thought, and I'll, let, I'll turn over to you for yours, is, is um, that when what we're looking at, beginning to end, and I have nothing really new to add, but what we're looking at, beginning to end, is the interaction of appearance, of reality, of the fact that there's not a clean line between appearance and reality, that seeming and being in human life are actually very close together and that and that we as images love images and love it in language and love it and so so we're gonna have to um to really get what Shakespeare do Shakespeare is doing I think we have to grow into the kind of person who can get what Shakespeare is doing if I can put it that way and we oh, have like to that. appreciate yeah. the importance of being. And we also have to appreciate the importance of seeming and appearance because appear, you know, uh, uh, to, to illustrate clothing in the Bible is not only to cover your shame, like Adam and Eve, it's also to reveal your glory, like the priest
4: mm-hmm.
3: and, 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 and appearance attiring is not only bad. It needs to be done with wit and wisdom. And this play I, I would I would argue is about people learning how to get dressed properly, how to appear properly.
0: I like that. I like all of that, and that is a huge Shakespeare theme is appearance versus reality, and I, and I, I think you're right. I think we need to think about what that means for an Elizabethan because a modern is going to come at the answer to that question entirely differently, right? We would reject the seeming for a quote unquote reality. And we would say we the like to have yes, which is just another mask, not just another fiction. But we don't see it that way, and so we would we we tend to look at it as the way to see things clearly is to put your emotions aside and reason your way through this. But as we see that Shakespeare is showing us, right. reason comes with its own set of problems. You can be just as misled by false reasoning and faulty premises as as you can be by by another kind of deception. They. Um. We can, Uh, we we can, as I like to, because people want to say, no, we need to, the problem in our cultures, we're feeling instead of thinking. And I always say, you know, it is just as possible to mm -hmm. think the wrong thing as it is to feel the wrong thing. I mean, people every day that think Mm -hmm. the wrong thing. This is, this is not a surefire cure to the answer. How do you know reality um it's it's both of those things the, 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 the how do you see reality is you have to think the right things and feel the right things and see the right things and that is a lifelong process of transformation right which i think shakespeare is right. showing us so I, yeah I, I agree with all of that i think he's giving us very complicated tangles and untangles to to try to see and of course well I'm, like no, life. I'm going like, to save like, that to when we get from Act 4, what I think he offers as, as the answer to that. But I think that in connection with that is what I had introduced um, in, in the first episode, that, that Shakespeare loves this idea of the anti-romantic versus the ultra-romantic. Um, because that that mm. fits in with all of this, because Benedict and Beatrice have been the anti-romantics. They want no part of it. Now we're in the story where they have fallen in love, so we'll have to see where do they end up. Claudio and Hero at the beginning of the story with the ultra-romantics, love at first sight, no questions asked, there's my beloved, and then we're going to see what happens to them as a result of that. Is Shakespeare going to flip everything on its head? Is he going to reverse it and say, well, now Claudio and Harrow are the anti-romantics, and Benedict and Beatrice are the ultra-romantics, or is he even going to go one step further than that and try to harmonize it and offer a third way, which Ooh. is so i uh, know we have so we got we got to see where he's going so i what i love about shakespeare is that he just just gives you all these beautiful threads at the beginning and then spends the rest of the play turning every single one of them on on their head
3: <laughs> yeah well <laughs> life does that too doesn't it <laughs> yeah. I, wonder if our fear of, I wonder if our fear of fiction disconnects us from reality and shakespeare is trying to bring us back together with it by turning everything on its head
0: I I think he does that in a lot of plays. And I, I I think that is very often what needs to happen to us, that we have to be turned upside down to finally see right side up. And I actually think that's the paradox at the heart of Christianity, right? Die to live, be last to be first. I mean, all of that is about mm-hmm. here's what you think needs to happen. Now flip it upside down.
3: Mm-hmm. Wow. With that, <laughs> we'd better go.
0: we better go before David beats down the door. All right. That, this was a fun episode. Yeah. I, I enjoyed this.
3: I'm glad. I hope the audience did too. It's, you know, it's it's easy to get absorbed in ideas and maybe not look at the words as closely, but that's what the words are for, I suppose.
0: We're trying to enter the reality that Shakespeare has given us. I think this is appropriate.
3: Yeah. All Good. right,
0: well, okay. until next time, much ado, folks. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much ado. <laughs> love it. <laughs> goodbye
0: all right bye-bye
1: hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince